Hello and welcome to episode four of Back to the Source. My name is Sam Stewart and today we'll be finding out about how spices are grown in Tanzania. Spices are an essential piece of any self-respecting cook's arsenal. Loading up a pot with a smattering of spices is a sure and fast way to make your food really sing. However, spices provide so much more than just food flavouring. They are said to have formed the bedrock of globalisation as we know it today, and are a source of livelihoods for millions of farmers around the world. So strap in and prepare for the next spicy curry to taste even better once you know where the good stuff comes from. Coming up, spices from Tanzania. Welcome to Back to the Source. Today I'm speaking to Steffi Mendelssohn from Grounded and we're going to be discussing uh, everything about spices from Tanzania. So welcome Steffi. Thanks Sam, it's really nice to be here, nice to join you. Maybe we can just kick things off with uh, some introductions uh, to you and and, uh, and the work of Grounded. Uh, Grounded was established in about uh, 2016 our focus has been really on working with farmers uh, to scale and uh, make sure that we can provide options for economically viable uh, regenerative agricultural production uh, in Africa. And so we started off working in South Africa um, with our first operating company. So that's an agro-processing company with whom we work, with who's a partner of ours and um, and then also started uh, some similar parallel in- enterprises in Zambia um, and now more recently in Tanzania, where we actually partnered up with an existing company um, that uh, was born out of a Tanzanian businessman and a Dutch businessman who came together to uh, yeah, look at spices and how they could improve uh, uh, the export of spices from uh, the Tanga region of, of Tanzania uh, to Europe. And uh, yeah, me, uh, me personally, my name is Steph and I'm coming from Namibia. Uh, I grew up here in the bush mostly. And um, yeah, now I live between, um, between a tent somewhere, uh, somewhere in some uh, unknown uh, rural landscape or in Cape Town for the rest of the time in South Africa. Great. That sounds like a pretty good, uh, pretty good setup. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't explain. <laughs> And, and and was that I guess growing up in in the in the bush in various uh, countries in southern Africa was that the reason why you wanted to get into this this space and work in in regenerative agriculture or what were the main drivers for you? Yeah, I've always been interested in in kind of nature and being outside and being uh, in the bush. But what was interesting for me is that you know looking kind of at a big or at a macro level. Um, especially in Africa, where we see so much uh, how agriculture is impacting the landscapes that we that we you know visit or live in or travel to, um, you know it's it's really addressing uh, the root causes and and the root opportunities for uh, people living in those areas to do things sustainably, but also to make a living. And um, I, d- I did spend uh, quite a few years doing research, socioeconomic uh, and and uh, environmental research. Uh, that was what I was doing when I was working in Angola uh, to develop uh, the Atlas of Southwestern Angola. And that was really a, a great opportunity because you learn a lot. But I found that it wasn't very, uh, you know, you, 
you didn't have a lot of opportunity to actually affect change. You just kind of gather information, analyze it a little bit, put it out there, try your best to make it accessible to the people who, who need to use that information and data to, to make uh, better decisions. But it's quite a passive um, kind of approach. And um, now what's really nice is that, you know, we're working actively with farmers, how they manage their land, how they manage their resources. But I think also, uh, you know, in partnership with these agribusinesses, these operating companies, um, you're making sure that that has, you know, a long term future and the, and the potential to grow uh, into something that's really, uh, yeah, I think productive and, and maybe a different way, perhaps a kind of an in-between path uh, between really, really small-scale subsistence uh, agriculture and then large-scale commercial agriculture, which, um, you know, has had a very negative impact uh, all over the world. And, you know, we don't necessarily want to follow that or, or promote that route um, in the in the areas where we're working. So trying to find a little bit uh, the in-between. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And it's quite a kind of pioneering approach, I think. It sounds like anyway, the, the approach we're grounded are, are taking and we're going to look into it uh, into, in a bit more detail through the lens of your work in Tanzania, where you work with uh, spice farmers. So let's let's start at the very kind of most fundamental level around what spices actually include. I mean, most people listening to this podcast will be uh, familiar with spices that they're using there in their cooking, probably. What does that look like on the ground in in Tanzania? What what are we talking about when we refer yeah. to spices? Yeah, so I mean, in general, obviously, a spices is generally just an ingredient that you use to flavor something, food or drinks or or anything like that, and it can be you know fruits or flowers or you know, for instance, with cinnamon, it's the bark of the tree. And in uh, Tanzania, there's quite a few different spices that are grown. You've also got things like chilies, uh, ginger. Those are shorter term crops. Um, but together with Trianon, uh, the agri-processing company and the farmers who we're working with in Tanzania, we focus on four specific spices. So that's black pepper, it's cardamom, um, it's cloves and it's cinnamon. So um, all of those are perennial crops. Um yeah, they're they're kind of I would say you could classify them as high value, low vol low volume. I mean, there's a lot of bulk spice trade, and the volumes are relatively big. But we're not talking about uh, volumes of the of staple crops like uh, like maize and mm. and wheat and so on. So relatively high value. They're non perishable as well, which uh, which helps when you're talking about export crops um, because they can be transported with sea freight. Um, yeah, so those are the spices that we're looking at and that are kind of prevalent in the area where we work as well. Spices are known for having quite a rich and diverse history, um, especially coming out of Tanzania and, and I think Zanzibar in particular. Um, yeah. So maybe you could give us a bit of a, a flavour, no pun intended, <laughs> of <laughs> the uh, history of spices uh, in Tanzania and kind of globally. Yeah. Yeah, I think Zanzibar is called the Spice Island. I think that the Zanzibar archipelago, which uh, includes uh, Unguja and Pemba Islands, I think they're called the Spice Islands of Tanzania. And so obviously that's what everybody thinks about when they think about uh, Tanzanian spices. Um, you know, it's also a really interesting, geographically just an interesting part of Tanzania because uh, I think it was originally a sultanate, sultanate uh, of 
uh, of Persian sultans who came there and, and lived there, I think, in the 8th century or, you know, a really, really long time ago. And I think they brought uh, spices into Tanzania, and that's why uh, they, they're really taken hold, especially on the coastal areas where, um, you know, these traders were, were much more active and set up some kind of bases and so on. Um, so although Zanzibar and or the Zanzibar archipelago, Unguja and Pemba, are the most famous uh, spice isles of Zanzibar of, of uh, Tanzania. We're actually uh, looking in Tanga, so that's kind of just across the water on mainland uh, Tanzania, where they're also growing a lot of spices. And, and those spices were actually introduced in that region at a later stage. I mean, there have been uh, a lot of transfer of, of kind of cropping systems between um, between the mainland and the island, but uh, the East Usambara Mountains where uh, we're active and the farmers who we're working with uh, where they're based. I think most of the spice farming in that area was actually uh, instigated with some German uh, farmers who arrived there, uh, I think, I think 80, 100 years ago, something like that, um, and brought in some new varieties, uh, especially of pepper and cinnamon and so on. So. So that's yeah, just a, an interesting history uh, of the kind of origin of spices in that in that region, yeah. And oh, what's also really nice, or what I think is uh, amazing about spices, is that you know if you look back in history, um, there's very few you know uh, in the in the very beginning when uh, these Persian traders were working on the east coast of Africa, it was really expensive first of all to travel and to transport any goods. So things that were transported and traded over large distances were incredibly high value. And, and you know, that was spices, gold, very, very few other commodities. You know, now we can ship everything around the world um, and we do. And that's uh, also challenging and problematic. But, uh, you know, with the limited resources and the long timelines uh, involved in international trade in, in those times, uh, it's amazing that spices, uh, you know, were at the forefront of uh, of, of, yeah, as a commodity moved around the world that traveled uh, east and west. Let's go now. Let's kind of hone in on the, the area where the, where the spices are, are grown. Just so kind of everyone can picture it. You've got Tanzania is, is, has Kenya to the north, Mozambique to the south, uh, and Lake Malawi to the, to the west. Is that right? Lake Victoria to the northwest, and then Lake uh, Tanganyika to the west, and then Lake uh, Malawi to the south, south sort of okay. central south. Yeah, but if you look at the if you think about that, if you think about that long coastline, north running kind of almost north to south, um, the area that we're talking about uh, is around the port town is called Tanga, and I think the region is called Tanga. Um, the spice processing uh, facility itself is uh, in a small town called Muheza, which is a district, uh, a district hub or district uh, capital or whatever. And um, what's really interesting about that area and what's really amazing about that area is that it's, it's part of the East Usambara Mountains, which form um, one in a block of mountains that make up the Eastern Arc Mountains, which is, uh, I think people call it the Galapagos of Africa in terms of species diversity, incredibly uh, rich biodiversity and um, very, very beautiful area as well. Um, and so that, that Eastern Arc Mountain, uh, you know, this range of mountain blocks actually stretches all the way from uh, the border of Kenya in an arc all the way down. 
and the Easter Sambaras is one of the kind of uh, main blocks there. Uh, yeah, really, really beautiful area. You're talking about maybe 60 kilometers, I think, uh, directly from the coast as the crow flies. And then if you were to keep flying, um, perhaps as the albatross flies uh, all the way to Pemba, uh, is kind of directly off the, off the coastal shelf there. Um, yeah, so just this beautiful landscape, uh, mountainous, you know, relatively cool up in the mountains, very, very high uh, species diversity and a lot of natural forests, um, some kind of natural lakes sitting on top of these uh, mountains as well. And then uh, interspersed with many, many spice farmers uh, in that region. And then there are also spice farmers, uh, you know, further inland around Morogoro um, and, you know, in, in other parts of Tanzania. But for these kinds of, you know, and then the, the ginger, the chili, um, the more uh, arid, arid uh, conditioned spices are grown towards Arusha. Okay. So we're kind of focused on the ore, which, uh, yeah, the sourcing region is all around there. Uh, from a di- couple of different villages, um, you know, some of them further away, and some of them, you know, twenty minutes uh, on the back of a of a motorbike or something. Interesting. And so, for for the ones we're discussing, the pepper, cardamom, clove, cinnamon, yeah. these are grown in the, in the mountainous areas. If we were to kind of transport ourselves there, what does it look like? What does a kind of a cardamom pod or a pepper, black pepper, look like when it's growing? Cardamom grows. I would say it's a big plant, but it grows low on the ground. You know, it almost looks like your kind of understory that you would imagine in a in a forested area, and that's actually how they grow it as well. So they clear the understory of uh, parts of forest, or in you know they're grown over very long periods of time. And if you uh, maintain the soil, you can keep those plantations productive without having to cut down uh, more of the forest ecosystem. But yeah, so these big cardamom uh, plants, maybe they're as tall as me. perhaps a little bit shorter um they're growing on the ground pepper is a vine so it's growing uh, either on a companion tree or just up uh, on on all of the kind of natural forest trees that you find around there so you, you know as you're driving up these very very windy mountain hills you just see kind of pepper vines growing all over the place but then of course there are more uh, formal uh, farms where you know the, the, they have uh, gravelia and other companion trees that are planted specifically as the support for the vines and then clove trees uh, they're tall kind of long almost look like soldiers uh, standing there uh, usually against the mountain um, they don't grow in the kind of understory or in the canopy of other uh, trees they, they like to be you know, part of the forest system and then obviously because uh, people need to harvest those cloves and they're growing all the way up and down the tree uh, they need to be relatively accessible um, yeah and then the cinnamon uh, cinnamon is another another tree which usually they keep the you know for the in terms of the farming practices they do a lot of uh, they should do a lot of pruning and they do that uh, which you know creates coppicing and that allows you know more and more of these young tender stems and branches of the cinnamon, which can be used uh, then to get the bark off and either create beautiful cinnamon rolls, which is like the kind of highest quality output that you would get from the cinnamon, or, you know, just taking off some sheets of that cinnamon um, and then drying that and, 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 then, and then grinding it. And a good note on the cinnamon is that you've got pure cinnamon and then you've got um, cassia. Uh, so cassia is another plant uh, which is processed similarly and has a very, very similar flavor. 
and uh, you know much of the cinnamon that you buy in an, a shop uh, or if you buy a spice blend or a curry blend or something like that which includes cinnamon a lot of the time uh, you have to make sure that it says pure salon cinnamon or otherwise they sometimes say cassia cinnamon which is in fact not a cinnamon uh, tree at all it's a completely different uh, species of plant so okay I don't that's that's super, that's that's fascinating and um i can imagine it's smelling really nice around these is that does it does that actually happen or, or not really yeah to an extent i mean like again with the cinnamon if you just pick a cinnamon leaf the smell of that leaf is so strong and it's so um pure you know i think spices it's amazing if you've smelled fresh spices and then old spices uh you've really almost start to smell dusty and and kind of old and when you walk through a village where they're processing pepper for instance and there's just sheets and it's just you know pepper as far as you can see uh it's definitely quite a a heady smell and like yeah it's nice and so it sounds like the way you've described those four uh spices it sounds like they they each have quite uh unique and different kind of growing environments so do do the farmers normally integrate them all within the same system or are they segregated into into separate sections? Yeah, I think that the beauty in the system, and that's also why we're so uh, excited about the potential to be, you know, of this of this kind of farming system, is that it works well in an agroforestry system because, uh, for instance, the cinnamon, oh, sorry, the um, the cardamom is a good understory crop. The pepper can grow on trees. You know, there is a, there's a lot that you can do in terms of uh, companion planting and agroforestry with spices. But it's true that of the four spices that we work with in that area, they're not often grown all together in one integrated system. So farmers, I think also because of the, the processing and the you know kind of the care of their plantations or their fields, they do specialize usually in one or two um, of the spices or m- maybe two of the spices is more common. You know, what you'll often find, for instance, is they'll have a few clove trees. You know, there will be some clove trees perhaps on the on the outskirts of the field or they'll have a different, uh, you know, they've, they've got kind of, I think uh, the farm sizes are between one and, and three hectares. And so often they have multiple different plots that are, you know, quite dispersed because it's like all very patchy landscape. Um, so they might have one plot uh, plot with more pepper, and then another area where they're doing cardamom, and then uh, you know some other crops that are into that are integrated or intercropped. Or banana is quite common there as well. Um, of course, uh, like in most areas, you've got some uh, maize production. Um, especially, you know, what happens is that if the soil is not well cared for, and there's not a lot of uh, you know agricultural inputs that are used in this landscape, so. Um, you know, there is a kind of gradual uh, soil health or soil nutrient decline. And uh, after a while, especially in the cardamom plantations, if they're not well uh, maintained and if they're not uh, farmed with inputs, with uh, either regenerative or in other areas, for instance, uh, in, in India, they're using a lot of uh, agrochemicals inputs. Um, but so if you if you don't uh, apply those inputs and take care of your plantation, production uh, goes down after about seven years. And then usually what the farmers in uh, Tanzania in the East Usambaras do is they take out the cardamom and replace it with maize. And then that maize is productive for, say, another two or three years. They can grow maize on that plot. And then they really have to leave it fallow because it's completely unproductive, unproductive or you could even say uh, degraded. And, of course, that's a cycle that can then, um, you know, 
catalyze uh, the catalyze deforestation and uh, clearing of of, uh, of forest habitat. Um, there's a, there's quite a, a lot of protected area there, which is well protected and and also very well respected, I would say, by um, all of the the village groups. Um, but of course, there's, there is also yeah uh, the need for land and the need for productive land. So Steffi has given us an idea of how the spices are grown in this mountainous region of Tanzania, as well as a bit of a history. I love the images of the pepper harvesting scene she described. And one day in the future, I'm sure technology will allow us to emit atmospheric aromas via podcasts to make things really come to life. In the second half of the podcast, we talk about why it's important to know where your spices come from. But first up, I asked her about the profile of a typical spice farmer. Yeah, good question. Um, no, they're predominantly spice farmers. Um, and, you know, as we were talking before, they kind of, they even specialize sometimes in one or two of the, of the different crops that we've mentioned. Um, and then they do have uh, often a little home garden or something for, you know, just their own consumption. But I would say that these... These spice farmers are generally, um, they're relatively, they're small holders in terms of their land holding. As I said, it's one to three hectares, maybe one to four hectares on average. Now we're talking about like a kind of average profile, but multiple of those, you know, easily a farmer has two or three of those uh, plots, which is not uh, small. It's not insignificant if you're looking at uh, smallholder farming in different African landscapes. And uh, it's a cash crop and they're, you know, they're farming it as a cash crop. It's for their income. It's their primary source of income. Of course, uh, like many, many uh, places, people have remittances from uh, family members who are living in town uh, or who have other uh, income and other jobs. But yeah, most of the people who are there are, I would say, full-time spice farmers. It's mostly men, to be honest. Uh, it's mostly men who are, are the, the farmer and, of course, farming households. So everybody uh, chips in. Um, yeah, it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit of an aging demographic, uh, which, of course, people, you know, are often um, aware of. Um, and, and many people think that that's a challenge in, like, the sustainability or the long-term viability of that supply of spices. But I think what would be great uh, and what probably will happen is if if there's really uh, a challenge with getting young people back into farming, perhaps uh, there will be far fewer young people in farming, but they'll be doing it more uh, vocationally than, uh, you know, just farming kind of circumstantially based on, uh, you know, what they have access to and where they live, Um so that's, uh, you know, I think that that actually can be also a positive thing. Yeah, I see. And where does, where does traceability fit into this? So traceability is just knowing where uh, any crop or commodity comes from, from back to the source, actually, um, as it were. So where, you know, wh- which farm it came from, who was the farmer, how was it grown, you know, what were the kind of production um, systems or inputs in place? as it was being grown, if there was some kind of a pre-harvest uh, handling or treatment, or if there's post-harvest uh, kind of pre-processing that sometimes happens on a farm, for instance, the pepper, it's thrashed and then it's dried in the sun. So all those steps are, are recorded. And then um, you have a full understanding of the, yeah, the steps that that crop or that bag of pepper has taken 
from um, from the source until it's consumed. So we're working really hard to introduce uh, tra uh, traceability in this in this area, where many of the systems are actually relatively opaque. But it's super important, you know, also to address some of the challenges that we've already spoken about. For instance, um, to have quality feedback for the farmers to have feedback on, um, you know, pre uh, on early harvesting uh, or immature harvesting, so that you can say to them. Unfortunately, you know, the way that this crop has been harvested and handled has decreased the quality of that crop. And so we can pay, you know, much less for that crop because uh, the sale of it is much more challenging. So providing those feedback loops, I think, is one uh, big part of it in terms of traceability. And then that's going back towards the farmer, but then going forwards towards the market. You know, many people, um, for instance, uh, for uh, organic uh, certification, traceability is just a kind of standard uh, practice you need to have it there um, but also if you want to connect you know from the market to the farmer if you want to provide some kind of kickbacks uh, which is you know another kind of pricing mechanism where uh, if your if your crop does better than you expected then you share that upside um, between the different value chain actors so we've got a processing company and, you know, we're going to do better if the, if we are able to sell the crops at a higher price than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. But it would also be great if the farmer also has some access to that, uh, to that kickback um, and to that, that additional profit. But you can't do that if you don't know where the, the spice came from and you can't, uh, you mm -hmm. know, so it creates, you know, bad incentives if you uh, provide everybody with a kickback. And some people are really carrying uh, the effort and you want to really promote and you want to, to support people who, who yeah, are taking their farming uh, to the next level. And especially with regenerative practices, organic practices, all that stuff. You know, I think we all think it sounds and it looks nice on paper and it looks amazing on packaging, but it, you know, it requires a lot uh, of the producer. So you want to make sure that that, that that goes back to the producer. Yeah. Yeah, and it, so we mean like once it's once the traceability system is in place, it's kind of it can act as a bit of a catalyst for to to incentivize farmers um, to produce their their spices in this case in in a certain way because they are guaranteed those um, those additional financial benefits. But often the difficulty is actually implementing the traceability system in the first place, isn't it? So whatever it sounds great, and it sounds like it. It, it would it would really solve a lot of the, the issues in the in the value chain. But but what are some of the challenges uh, faced when when trying to implement the traceability system? Yeah, I think what's interesting is these days you get so much um, you get so much kind of hype around like high tech blockchain blockchain uh, traceability and stuff. I mean, where you just where you don't have ordinary access, where you don't have a cell phone signal, where you don't have those kind of things. We, we find uh, the best thing is to just get something working well and in the most simple way possible. And then if that's working, to upgrade a system. But rather than going for these very, very high-tech um, yeah, solutions, which are exciting and they have, I mean, they hold great promise and I think they, have, they can be really effective and so on. But our approach is kind of kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And just that's... If we can understand it and if we can start to make progress to, to know, okay, what's the, you know, even getting the GPS coordinate, as I was explaining, of these farms that, or these farmers who have multiple different plots, then to say, okay, so I, I can go and I can buy your pepper from you, Sam, 
But um, which plot did this come from and where is that plot? Uh, it's, it's quite different. And especially when that plot is a neighboring um, national forest or something like that. So you want to be able to provide that, uh, that transparency. Uh, and a lot of brands are really asking for transparency. Um, and that's another thing that is facilitated through the backbone of traceability. You know, transparency is choosing what you want to do with your traceability system. All right, this has been this has been a great conversation. But let's um, let's move on to the final few questions now before we we finish up. And the first one is around if people listening to this podcast or consumers in the UK mainly, but but anywhere want to make sure they're buying spices that are regeneratively produced or are traceable, certified, etc. What what can they do? Um, what, what should they look out for? I think one of the simplest things to do is to buy um, individual spices. Uh, if you and there's been a lot of I think recent news articles on this, especially uh, in Europe, on um, how spice blends introduce all sorts of uh, you know other ingredients. It's very very difficult uh, to trace that back. It's difficult to know the source of of you know large list of ingredients involved uh, included in those blends. So if there's one thing that you can do that's really easy is if you want to make curry, then buy the individual ingredients um, and and kind of mix them up yourself. And uh, you know, I think even there's a lot that can, you know, there's a lot that comes from packaging. Sometimes uh, sometimes source is the source of, of a good is uh, visible on the packaging. So you might be able to see, um, you know, Sri Lankan black pepper or Tanzanian cinnamon or whatever is important for regenerative farming there is now a certification but as far as i know there's no uh regenerative agriculture certified uh, spice farmers in africa i think i only know of one uh regen organic certified cocoa farmer who's uh, on the border between drc and uganda so uh that's not really i don't know those certifications are you know they obviously serve a purpose um and you know if you want to select organic uh, produ- produce i think that that's also worth it but yeah maybe the easiest thing is just buy individual spices yeah no that's a good that's a good push so avoid at all costs those like chick those madras yeah. kind of curry pastes which come in massive glass jars <laughs> yeah and something as ambiguous something as ambiguous as like chicken spice or something like that that you really have no idea okay stay clear okay good and are there any other brands or companies that you admire in the spice sector or just more general who are doing doing good good stuff? Yeah, there's some really nice brands. Unfortunately, a lot of the really nice brands that I know of are actually uh, based in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the Netherlands, there's a company called The Good Spice. And um, yeah, in, in South Africa, there are a couple of nice uh, spice companies. So in the UK market, I have to say I'm not 100% sure. Um, and what makes a good spice so good then? But it's, it's the way they're sourcing their spices from individual. It's more of a direct yeah. sourcing model, is that right? Yeah, and and I mean also like Frontier Co-op and so on. They're working with producers to you know not to just say this is my list of standards, this is what I want. You know, I say jump, you say how high. Um, it's more like step by step. How do we achieve these goals together? Um, you know, and also transferring, I would say, a reasonable amount of the value along the that along the value chain, so that it's a little bit less skewed yeah. um, towards the farmer. And uh, soon, well, I don't know, 
so grounded so grounded is not a brand and we don't have any brands we've got a company called grounded ingredients which really focus on um traceability and providing these kind of high quality premium crops so for instance like if you want to if you want to drink or if you want to taste these spices from tanzania in the netherlands there's a company called spirited union which is uh get this it's a and a kind of beverages company that does uh, artisanal rums and gins and that kind of thing. And so they're using some of these spices as flavoring agents in their, uh, cool. in their drinks. So then you're going to have a really nice cocktail with uh, some organic by default um, regenerative <laughs> East bar and cinnamon. Yeah. That'd be a nice, nice spicy cocktail. Um, yeah. sounds, sounds good. And then finally, if people want to, read up a bit more about spices or or listen to a podcast or, or watch a film about Tanzania is there, is there anything you'd recommend yeah about spices I yeah I don't have a good book at the moment that I've read but a nice book about Tanzania would be the Zanzibar chest uh, it's I don't know it wouldn't say necessarily a nice book but uh, it's a very very good book and it's a very interesting account of uh, the history and yeah a fantastic read for anybody who just wants a, an excellent book. I would say Zanzibar Chest is a, is a great one. Awesome, Steffi. Thank you so much for, for chatting. Yeah, no, it was really nice. Thanks, Sam. So that's it for this episode of Back to the Source. Thanks very much for listening. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or guest recommendations, you can email me at backtothesourcepod at gmail.com if you've enjoyed this episode it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from this episode was produced by me sam stewart with the soundtrack composed by henry middleditch and podcast artwork done by storm at hill thanks a lot and see you next time